Turb Alper and the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, or perhaps, uh, perhaps it makes sense to say our guest, because he's here uh, not just for my benefit, but uh, of course everyone's benefit. So let's say our guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio is managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. Of course, Dave Cameron spent uh, the majority of last week publishing his trade value series, in which he names from uh, numbers 50 to number one the most valuable players, uh, so far as their their trade value is concerned, specifically their trade value is concerned. Uh, we spend some time discussing that list and investigating some, uh, or inspecting more closely some uh, particular players on it. Uh, on Monday, Dave Cameron published the anti-trade value list, just a collection of five players whose contracts, certainly relative to their present skills, their present production, are not particularly excellent. Uh, and then another thing is, uh, on Monday, or maybe it was Sunday, former Major Leaguer Gabe Kapler uh, published a piece on Boston radio website WEEI regarding the information gap between players and front offices, uh, specifically uh, in terms of the means uh, both those groups, both players and uh, front offices, use to assess the value of, player, uh, of players. Uh, players might have one set of criteria. Front offices might have another. Kapler suggests uh, perhaps that there should be more communication between the two. Dave Cameron has uh, some thoughts on that, as you'll find out as well. Uh, let's get to that, though. It is... Uh, it is uh, Fangraphs Audio. It's Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs, making his weekly appearance. And it begins right now. What's that, sorry? Uh, I said hi. Oh, yeah, good. That's Yeah, that's how, uh, how we introduce ourselves these days. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Let me just make sure these uh, levels are all right. Uh, just as, <clears throat> so you're aware, there's a 99% chance that during the podcast, my dog is going to wake up. Okay. I will, I will need to go outside, and you can either make that part of the podcast, or you can pause. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, we'll figure out a way around it. I bet our uh, listeners, though, are um, hovering in suspense. Yeah, I, I'm sure that will be the most entertaining part of the podcast. Yeah, it could very well be. Yeah. Uh, now, typically, you and I will uh, have a, a very brief um, back uh, back and forth uh, via email uh, regarding the the subject matter. Uh, in this particular case, I'm guessing it's um, um, somewhat certain though that we'll be uh, we haven't uh, we haven't done that, but uh, I assume we'll be uh, trade value should be part of it. Yeah. I mean, it, what I've written about for the last, you know. Six days or so. so yeah. You right. know, if you want to talk about things that I've written, then yes, we should talk about trade value. If you want to talk about things that I have not written, I'm happy to talk about anything else. Yeah. Well, I don't. Um, so the alternative would be to discuss. Uh, today, I was going to do a post called. Um, uh, the dog is uh, uh, promptly awake. Okay. Uh, I didn't even take nearly as long as I thought it would. All right. So you are you just going to go outside? Are we still going to be on the phone then? Yeah, I just have to, like, uh, you know, let her out, and then she will proceed to probably bite me. So you might hear some kind of, like, screams and pain. Okay. Uh, that, that's certainly possible. Yeah, that's good. But, uh, I'm sure that our listeners will take a certain sort of pleasure in that. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's probably many fangrass readers who wanted to fix some kind of animal on me before, so this will be their dream come true. That's right. Okay, well, good. So we're making, 
It's it's sort of like a Make a Wish Foundation for for the public at large. Kind of. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just for like a, the, the, instead of like needy children with dying, you know, fatal diseases. Yeah. It's for mean mean people who want to see pain inflicted on me. Yeah. All right. Well, let's. Uh, um, yeah. You have no. So I was going to say I was going to do a post for Knockoffs today called um, um, uh, Matt Harvey's top pitches from Sunday ranked by Splendor. <laughs> okay. So we could do that, but uh, we don't have to do that. I mean, he, he is good, though, is one point to make. Yeah, we could do a whole podcast about my Harvey. We could. And I, I, actually, I guess it, uh, that actually relates at, at some level to your trade value series, because uh, if I'm not mistaken, he's the only pitcher to have made it into the top ten. That's correct. He, uh, I think he ranked number seven uh, or eight, somewhere in there. He was, he was pretty high for being a pitcher. Uh, right, he's high for being a pitcher. Now, if we if we were to go back to your earliest uh, edition of this, whether you want to go back to, I think you started on USS Mariner, uh, perhaps two thousand five, two thousand five, yeah. right? And then, of course, it's been uh, it's been on the sites in two thousand eight. Uh, so that's uh, eight years of doing it, really. And um, nine, yeah, right, nine years, right? Nine, okay, yeah, yeah, we're in the ninth year, right? So, yeah. um, my guess would be, but I would like to hear your um, from you. How many pitchers do you think were in the top ten or twenty or fifty in that first edition, and uh, and and how does that compare to, to this this present one? Uh, I think that pitchers have become less represented over time. I think the first name I ever wrote on the trade value series was Daniel Cabrera. He came in at number forty. I only did forty the first year uh, on the two thousand five version. Uh, as you, you can imagine, Daniel Cabrera did not make the 2013 version. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think there were, looking back at the 2005 version, there were a lot of pitchers. Uh, Mark Burley ranked really high. Uh, you know, Mark Burley had a nice career, but, you know, certainly not going to rank on the trade value series this year. Uh, I think of the pitchers from that list that are still on, it's probably just Felix Hernandez. Um, mm-hmm. I think he would have been 20 at that point, so he, he cracked the list. But I think he's probably the only one who's on both lists. Uh, and there were a lot of, uh, I think if you look back at the, the history of the list, a lot of the rankings that look really silly, uh, are pitchers being very high. Mark Pryor ranked really highly. Uh, I think Jeremy Funderman ranked per- predominantly on the list in 2005. Um, a lot of the names that you say, oh man, these guys are great young pitchers. And then a few years you look back and you're like, well, not so much. Right. And now what is the thing, f- uh, for you that sets Matt Harvey apart or what, um, What's special about him that would allow him, uh, I guess, to rank above uh, high pitchers or, or every other pitcher, I, I guess with the exception of his contract? Or, I mean, that's part of it, obviously. That is part of it. But I think the other thing we're looking at here is with Matt Harvey, it's not so much a future projection. Matt Harvey is, you know, maybe one of the five best pitchers in baseball right now. And, you know, just based on today, if you were trying to win a game, you'd take Clayton Kershaw, you'd take Felix Hernandez, You'd maybe take Justin Verlander, depending on how much you think his 2013 struggles are real. And then you might take Matt Harvey. I, mean, he, I think you might have Wainwrights in that next one. There's a few handful of pitchers that are legitimate number one, win every time they go out there kind of guys. Matt Harvey has pitched himself into that class. So when you have a guy doing that at the league minimum, uh, and the league minimum for the next couple of years, and then a couple of arbitration years, if he beats the odds, uh, he might be you know right behind Mike Trout and Bryce Harper as the most valuable trade. Asset. I think the risk of pitchers probably pushing down a bit, uh, but in terms of present value, league minimum eighth, uh, that's pretty pretty high up there. Now it seems to me that the one thing that could help Matt Harvey in terms of his future value as well is obviously one thing that happens to pitchers. It's not regularly, but generally, they they have their highest velocities um, when they enter the league, and uh, right. generally speaking, those velocities decrease over the course of their career until 
either that or injury is what uh, sort of removes them from the league. Uh, right. Uh, Matt Harvey starting with velocities. I mean, he was he was uh, he hit a hundred, I think, like four or five times uh, during his start on Sunday, and uh, you know that's not um, that's not abnormal for him. So it seems to me, with right. a, in a case like Matt Harvey, if he's going to decline, he's going to decline first to 95 miles per hour, then 93. I mean, he's got a, he's got a ways to go. Right. This is basically the Felix Fernandez case, right? Or kind of Tim Lincecum, but maybe a little less extreme. Both of these guys came into the league high 90s, serious velocity, good off-speed stuff, but really like high-velocity pitchers. Lincecum regularly hit 100 in college. Uh, now both of them throw, you know, 88 to 92. They've declined a very long way, but because they have so far to fall, their velocity decline has still left them as, you know, average velocity or maybe even slightly below. Uh, and their secondary just is mostly made up for that, not as much in Lincecum's case. But I think what we see is when a guy is throwing 100, he can lose a lot of arm strength and still be pretty good. Now, is it fair to say, obviously we've had some exceptions to this with Mike Trout, uh, you know, becoming you know one of the best two players in the major leagues really at this point um it, it seems to me that it's the exception to find uh, a position player who's so good early on are there more instances in which a pitcher um is instantly essentially not you know one of the best in or not necessarily just one of the best in the league but also the best that he ever will be yeah, there's no question that I think there's a long history of pitchers. I mean, you know, Dwight Gooden in 1985 might be the most famous, but, you know, really young pitchers breaking into the league and just being among the best pitchers in baseball from the minute they arrived. Because I think there's more to pitching that is physical than there is hitting. Where hitting is, is very mental and very approach-based uh, and, very, you know, relies on a lot of experience. You have to be a lot of breaking balls. You have to learn how to work counts. You have to kind of understand uh, which pitches to swing at and, there's a lot of non-physical things to being a really good hitter. Uh, in, in baseball, it's, you know, if you throw 102 with a nasty curveball, you, you know, that's going to work even if you're stupid. <laughs> right. Uh, are there instances – well, because I was uh, going over this the other day. Of uh, I remember when Matt Anderson uh, was pitching for the for the Tigers. And, right. Um, uh, Matt, it won't I, always work if you're stupid, I guess. There well, are exceptions. Well, I'm, I, I'm not, it's not a question of his intelligence, but it is. It, we could say it's a question of pitchability, perhaps, or perhaps it's like pitching intelligence is the right. is what we'll call it. So I think that's fair. Um, Matt Anderson had problems uh, as a, as a major league pitcher, and I think that he he sort of walked into some unfortunate injuries uh, as well. Yeah. Um, but um, are there instances really of uh, pitchers who throw 100 and, and don't have success? I mean, yeah, that, that's I mean, maybe a naive Bruce, question, but... Well, Bruce Rodone or Rondone, Bruce Rondone, you know, whatever, yeah. however you call it, just pronounce. There's a lot of Rondones and Rodones running around baseball right now. I think, right. like, I looked this up on Fangraphs not too long ago. There are, like, three Rondones in the history of baseball. They're all currently pitching, and they're all terrible. But, uh, well, let's see. One of them is Bruce Rondone. You say terrible. Yeah, like a, you're terrible well, is different I mean, than right. my he, terrible. It may be different than other people's They're terrible too. as in, like, you know, he hasn't had any major league success. Obviously, he still has potential, and he could become quite good. Right. Uh, but as of yet, has not become a good major league pitcher. I think uh, Hector Rondone. Yes, I've uh, seen Hector Rondone pitch. Yes. Or he, maybe he Jorge not, Rondone. Not very good. Well, who's uh, the, there's one know. in the Cardinal system. Maybe that's Maybe that's Jorge Rondone. Right, yeah. Uh, but I think it's interesting that there's like this run of Rondones, and then Carlos Rodone is what the number one pitching prospect in next year's draft. So uh, he's pretty good. He's uh, yes, he's also very good. Although of course you know there's uh, always some questions to, uh, so what that because he's not a very big guy, uh, Rodon. 
He's uh, no. he's uh, he is an excellent slider, and, I don't, and that's another thing is uh, with regard to that sort of pitcher. I mean, he obviously he has a fastball. I think he's hit ninety five, but um, you know, as long as we're talking about development, because it, at some level your trade value series, part of it is contract present you know present contract. Part of it is present value, and then the fu- and then the other part of it is is you know future value, future production. Um, I'm going to assume that. That uh, you know, unlike a Garrett Cole, for example, who had some difficulties in college, uh, but had excellent arm speed, a, a pitcher like Carlos Rodon uh, might uh, might be a different sort, right? Um, who has a who's who has an excellent breaking pitch and has had excellent success, but maybe uh, doesn't possess the arm speed. Right. I mean, I think you could almost point to Garrett Cole's teammate Trevor Bauer as an example of this, right? Like Bauer didn't throw the part of Cole; it wasn't considered to be quite as, you know, the elite pitching prospect when he got to UCLA. He just outpitched his teammate uh, and ended up going pretty high in the draft himself. So I think, you know, Bauer was a case of, you know, the velocity wasn't necessarily as elite as Cole's and he wasn't the, the perfect pitcher frame and he had the weird, uh, you know, pregame warm-up thing, but the, the the success and the results eventually just led to him being a very high draft pick. Uh, there's no question the scouts like velocity, but they also like success. Okay. All right. Uh, let's move on to uh, let's move on to another another player about whom I'm uh, curious here, um, and that is Carlos Gonzalez. <clears throat> I'm interested. Yeah. I'm interested in Carlos Gonzalez, uh, who ranks tenth on your trade value series, and uh, has contracts of eleven, sixteen, seventeen, and twenty million um, yeah. in future years. Here's why I'm interested in him. In some ways, to me, he profiles rather similarly to Matt Kemp, insofar as uh, he's athletic, but is not necessarily the sort to play center field. And also, a lot of his value comes from um, certainly power, but also, um, and that's, that's even power after adjusting for, um, for his home park. Uh, but a lot of it uh, comes from uh, his batted ball profile. Uh, he does not control the strike zone particularly well, although I, I believe he's improved to some degree over that. Now, Kemp, you've dropped the list because we've seen what happens, and who knows whether that is from a lack of real approach or if it's from a... You have a shoulder injury. Um, he's come back, and you know he had a home run when he came back. I mean, you know, he still has uh, physical tools. What's the, what's different for you about Carlos Gonzalez than Matt Kemp? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. So maybe one of the most important things is this list isn't necessarily a projection of future performance, right? So like, I'm not just taking all these players and saying I think you know this player who ranks 10th is going to do better than this player who ranks 30th. Uh, the question that we're really trying to answer is if a major league team uh, could acquire one of these players, or essentially if their team put them on the blocks, um, who would command the largest return in trade from someone else right now? So you put them, you put Matt Kemp and you put Carlos Gonzalez on the blocks today, I think Gonzalez gets a significantly better return simply he's playing well and Matt Kemp is not. And uh, you know, we say, well, you know, they have similar skill profiles and kind of success before, but you're taking a pretty big risk to trade for Matt Kemp at the point where he's being a replacement-level player, his shoulder's a problem, he's spent a significant amount of time on the disabled list, and he's due $20 million a year for the next six years. Uh, with Carlos Gonzalez, you have a guy making $11 million who's putting up MVP type of numbers uh, in his age 27 season. There's significantly less risk. You're not really betting on uh, a rebound. You're not, you're not playing for 2014. And I think when it comes to trade value, uh, teams prioritize short-term value over long-term value. They certainly consider long-term value in terms of years of team control or some huge backloaded contract. Uh, 
but I think overall teams generally make trades when they're trying to win. And if you're trying to win, I think you want the guy who's right now, not the guy who might start hitting if he gets healthy, whenever that's going to be. Okay, so so it should be noted, and in, 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 um, you're doing this right now, is that when we discuss trade value, we're discussing today essentially, or this this yes. week, this you know, leading up to this year's trade deadline. Correct. The idea is not that Carlos Gonzalez is going to be a better player than Matt Kemp over the next six or seven years. Uh, I probably, I'm not even sure I would say that I believe that, but I think that if you put them both on the market today, the fact that Gonzalez is hitting, Gonzalez is healthy, and Gonzalez is making half the money that, that Matt Kemp is with you know, only a four-year commitment instead of six or seven more years, um, I think teams would be a lot more willing to give up premium young talent or premium prospects to get a guy like Gonzalez performing well they can stick in the middle of their lineup and not have to worry about it with a guy like Kemp who's got a bad shoulder and might not hit. All right, so you've looked at uh, you looked at the 50 guys who are the, essentially possess the most trade value. Uh, before you did that last week, you also um, included uh, I don't know, a half dozen guys who just uh, just barely missed the list, or maybe a dozen guys actually who who sort of yeah. uh, were candidates certainly to make the list and, and did not. Um, but they you know they all have sort of a, a case to be made for inclusion probably next year, depending on how things work out. I'm curious as to um, who, who got, which guy is, in your mind, has the highest trade value who's also likely to be traded? Uh, well, Giancarlo Stanton, I think, probably has to be the easy answer, right? I mean, he was ranked 7th or 8th or somewhere in that mix. Uh, I think everyone expects the Marlins to trade him this winter. Um, if he's not traded fairly soon, it'll be a pretty big upset. If we were going to kind of put him aside and say, it's the Marlins, you know, they just trade everyone... Then you're probably looking at David Price. I think you know he's kind of uh, you know no pun intended priced himself out of the Rays' plans. Uh, he's going to make a you know he's making ten million this year as a super two uh, second year guy. He's going to get arbitration, get an, another nice raise, uh, probably be up you know maybe near fifteen million for next year. Uh, the Rays have enough pitching depth that they don't need to pay fifteen million dollars to David Price, uh, and I think they can turn him into a nice package of young players, which I would expect them to do this winter. Okay, and David Price was in that uh, 46 to 50 range, it should be noted. Yeah. I think, yeah, he was 44 or somewhere there. Right. Um, now, with regard to Stanton, right, so so a player like Stanton, who you have ranked within the top 10 uh, of the this trade value series, this is curious, right, because we've seen, you know, we see certainly leading up to the trade deadline, we see a number of trades for, uh, uh, for players who have a year left uh, or, or have either have um, – or in their contract year, or uh, leading up to it by a year, we see those sorts of players traded. Last year, we saw Zank Greinke traded, for example. Um, you know, there, there was speculation certainly about a number of other uh, top-flight pitchers, in, in particular, it seems, but but position players too. Um, and we got a sense; we still have a sense of a little bit of what the market is, right? We, we've been hearing conversations recently about Matt Garza uh, and what he might get from a team like the Rangers, for example, what uh, what the Cubs might get for him. Um, there, there is no player, um, at least, to, uh, I mean, certainly within the last year or two, who's been, who's, who's had both uh, Stanton's uh, level of production and also the sort of value p- provided to to an organization. I, I don't know how far back you'd have to go to think of a player like that who was traded. Uh, you might have that off the top of your head, um, but uh, but what what can we expect in terms of a package, uh, the, the sort of package that would. Um, that would that would net a team, uh, Giancarlo Stanton. Yeah, I think if we're looking back for like comparable types of trades for Giancarlo Stanton, there's basically two. Uh, there's Justin Upton last winter, who's Justin Upton is not Giancarlo Stanton, but it's a you know a younger, 
power-hitting corner outfielder with, uh, you know, superstar potential, highly thought-of prospect, under team control for three more years. In Upton's case, he was already under contract, so you knew what the salaries were in Stanton's case, three arbitration years. Uh, so they'll probably be a little bit cheaper than what Upton was going to get, but it's going to be in the same ballpark, uh, or at least, you know, not too dissimilar. Um, and you know, I think we saw that Upton, you know, maybe didn't return the type of uh, package that people expected. Um, the Diamondbacks took a lot of flack for what they ended up trading him for. The, there was the report that the Mariners had given up Tyler Walker and Nick Franklin and a couple other pieces before Upton used his no trade list. That would have looked pretty good for the Diamondbacks right now, considering how well Tywan Walker is pitching in AAA and Nick Franklin's doing in the majors. Um, so I think, you know, there is certainly some, some trade value that Upton had, uh, even, you know, coming off a kind of mediocre year and, um, his potential certainly uh, still commanded some real market value, even if the performance wasn't great, which is kind of where Stanton's at this year with the knee issues and missing some time and not hitting what he had in the past. But I think probably the better comp is if you go back to an, the last time the Marlins traded a player like this was Miguel Cabrera. Uh, the Tigers gave up Andrew Miller and Cameron Maben uh, and took all of Dontrell Willis's contract, which was a little bit of an albatross at that point. Uh, Miller and Maben were two of the best prospects in baseball. Uh, both had, you know, premium upside that neither one has really turned into, but, uh, Miller was, you know, a very highly thought of pitcher coming out of North Carolina. Maven was a five-tool center fielder who looked like he was going to hit. Uh, you know, I think when you look at what Cabrera got, uh, Stanton should probably bring back even a little bit more. Because I think mean, Cabrera at that point, um, there was questions about his defensive position. Uh, you know, he had some weight issues. Uh, you know, I think there were some maybe more personality concerns with Cabrera than there are with Stanton. Stanton's even younger than Cabrera when he was traded. And I think, in retrospect, that deal looks terrible for the Marlins. So I think this time around, they're going to make sure that they do better than they did when they traded Miguel Cabrera. All right. So, and I, I mean, the, when you're looking at teams with with whom or with which he could potentially end up, on the one hand, we have to say, well, these are the teams that would that uh, you know. Um, could use a, well, I guess everybody could use a player like John yeah, Carlos. Right. So that's yeah, all, all 29 teams want John Carlos. <laughs> so I guess I guess that's curious. I mean, is it possible that a team uh, would seek to acquire Stanton, um, even if they did not, even if they were not necessarily uh, competing for a playoff berth? I, I think every team in baseball will make a phone call when the Marlins finally say that Stanton's available. And, you know, I mean, I wouldn't call it the most likely scenario, but I could see Tampa Bay trading for him, even though they don't think they have any chance of locking him up. Because if you look at the Rays, you know, they're, they're always kind of looking for young, cheapish talent, and, and they're willing to keep guys, uh, through their arbitration years. Um, Stanton, you know, next year, if they make, whatever, five to ten million, somewhere in that range in his first year of arbitration, still going to be a tremendous value. Uh, it would be not out of the realm of possibility, I think, that the Rays would give up a package of young players to get Stanton, keep him for a year, maybe even two, and then flip him for another package of young players after they've tried to win a World Series with him. Uh, I think, you know, you'd see rebuilding teams call, and I think you'd see, um, you know, the, the Mariners have been calling about every right fielder who's been available for the last couple of years. I think Texas has been noted to be uh, heavily interested, and they have a guy in Jerickson Profar who doesn't really have a place to play in Texas who could headline a deal. I think you'd see... Uh, basically, every team in baseball would be heavily interested, and the bidding will will get insane when they put him on the market. Right, right. So again, it's just an interesting situation where it's not really a team. It it, it would not necessarily require a team that's looking to make the playoffs uh, this season, or even really thinks it has a chance. It's really any any team that uh, has has place for Giancarlo Stanton, which should be most teams because he's one of the best players uh, in the league, uh, certainly when he's healthy, and it, as long as they have the talent um, in exchange. Yeah, I think you could probably call it Houston off the list. 
you know, I think that there's some some level of co- competitive needed where if I say I'm acquiring three years of team control and then I'm hoping to refine him to an extension, I'm probably not going to be able to do that if I'm losing 100 games per year. And, you know, maybe the Astros won't keep losing 100 games for the next three years, but they're not going to be a playoff contender anytime soon. They've got a ways to go. So I think, you know, teams like that, you probably say they're probably not in the mix. Uh, but, you know, excluding the Astros, pretty much everyone else, they're going to try. Okay. Uh, now, you've also... Uh, uh Posted today, your uh, the anti-trade value series. Uh, it just just uh, uh, <clears throat> it's just five five players long. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Definitely not doing fifty players deep for that. Right. Now, uh, uh, w- without going through all of these players individually, what would you say is, are, are the sort of um, qualities that each that each of the players share? I'll just name them quickly. Uh, 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 starting from number five, it's it's Prince Fielder. Josh Hamilton, Ryan Howard, Alex Rodriguez, and Albert Pujols. What, what are the sort of qualities you see? Uh, I think with all of them, there's one very obvious trait. They're power hitters being paid to be power hitters who aren't hitting for power. Uh, I mean, even they're still hitting for some power, but not what they were uh, when they were signed. You know, they were all signed to be 40, 50 home run guys, driving a ton of runs, be middle-of-the-order hitters um, for performance or health reasons or both. Uh, they're just not that anymore. And I think, you know, the fact that these five players and, you know, Mark Deshera was very close to being number six on the list, so you can throw him into the boot as well. Uh, I think that these guys are, are a pretty big warning sign where there's a lot of, there's always been talk about, oh man, it's so dangerous to give a, a pitcher a long-term big money contract. Uh, hitters, not so safe either. Now, what is the thing, uh, do, do we know what's, what's affecting, the, uh, this, these players' power and, and, you know, is this something that we could have seen? I think, you know, the, there's that idea of old player skills, right? I think all of these guys uh, are pretty old player skills when they got these large contracts. I mean, Ryan Howard was just overrated from the start. This is, you know, the Ryan Howard contract going around was one of the worst in baseball history just because it was so glaringly a bad idea when they signed it. That was just a misevaluation on the part of the Phillies. But, you know, he was a really big guy <laughs> uh, heading into his mid-30s. Um, it, you know, Prince Fielder's a really big guy. Albert Pools is a really big guy. Alex Rodriguez is, wasn't early in his career, but he's gotten fairly large. Uh, Josh Hamilton's not the same size as those guys, but, you know, has his own health issues. I think with all of these guys, it's not that hard to look at them and say, I can see that body breaking down. When, you know, they're in their mid-30s and they have to carry a couple hundred pounds, uh, and if their body breaks down and they lose some bat speed, they're not very good anymore. Right, and this is one thing that uh, certainly we've discussed on, on the podcast before, right, is in terms of... Uh, uh, p- prospect evaluation. I think we t- we discussed it with regard to Anthony Rizzo, right? Is yeah. how uh, the idea of a first base prospect um, is is sort of a misnomer um, because well, because you yeah. right. I mean, it, it it can theoretically exist, but the bat has to be so good. Right. It's not that there aren't first base prospects. It's that the bar for them is very high, and so you you can't really have a an elite first base prospect until they've kind of shown uh, that they're going to hit for power. I mean, I think, you know, we have, there's a pretty long line of guys like Casey Cashman and James Loney and, uh, you know, players who were expected, oh, those doubles are going to turn into home runs, and they never did. <laughs> and, yeah, I, mean, I think you could probably throw Jesus Montero into this list of guys who are considered really good hitting prospects uh, based on projection of what they will become with the bat. But projecting the bat is so hard that, for me, I think you need to have a little bit more of a, a proven skill set or a, a developed skill set at that position where we say, you know, if you're going to be a premium first baseman, you already better be hitting. It's not, you know, we hope you're going to hit. You better be hitting right now. 
You mentioned uh, with the, the the sort of phrase doubles turning into home runs. I feel like I've seen research uh, at some at some somewhere at some point as to whether that's actually a thing. I, this is what you hear with regard to Manny Machado all the time right. now. Is that uh, of course he's hitting a lot of doubles, and, <laughs> but yeah. you hear the, the, the phrase. Um, uh, yes, yeah, this uh, as, as soon as some of his doubles start to turn into home runs, but you know not all doubles hit the wall. Uh, you know a lot of doubles right. yeah. are ground balls down the third baseline. So I'm curious. Right. Uh, I assume that someone's picked this up in terms of research. What actually happens? Do doubles turn into home runs? They do. Uh, maybe not as the same for everyone, right? So, like you know, they're the doubles down the line. They're also hustle doubles, right? So, like Brett Gardner might get a lot of doubles just because he's fast enough to turn a single into a double. Those aren't turning into home runs. Uh, so I think, you know, it's important to keep the player type in mind and their skill set and kind of the balls that they're hitting. I think Manny Machado is an interesting guy because this, you know, he's a bigger guy. You could easily see him putting on 20, 30 pounds without it, you know, affecting his abilities too much. Uh, I think, you know, the frame matters a lot here. So if you've got a, you know, five foot nine, 240 pound guy who's hitting a lot of doubles, those probably aren't going to turn into home runs. You have six foot four, 180 pound 19 year old. I think I'm a little more comfortable with that projection. I think, uh, you know, might have even Bill James looked at this fairly recently and found that uh, hitters who hit a lot of doubles earlier in their career do hit more home runs as they get closer to age 27. Uh, it wasn't a surprising finding. I think it's kind of what we expected, but there is data to support the idea. And then uh, one other thing with, just with regard, uh, before, you know, before we stop talking about the trade value series here, um, you, you mentioned at one point uh, a player who had uh, blocked a trade to, oh, it was Justin Upton who blocked a trade to Seattle. Uh, yeah. I was wondering what, if any, uh, consideration you gave to no trade clauses when you're put. I mean, I understand you have a lot of players to assemble here, and right. may, maybe getting deep into all of the the specifics of the contract, uh, you know, might prove uh, extraordinarily difficult. But I was wondering to uh, to what, if any degree, you considered no trade clauses, and generally how that affects a trade uh, a player's trade value. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I think I, I just decided to stop including trade value, no trade clauses in the the trade value discussion, simply because. They're so fungible. I mean, you know, some players will absolutely say, "I'm never waiting my never waiting my no trade clause. I want to stay here forever." Uh, you know, you just can't trade me. But it's impossible to know how serious those statements are until a team actually tries to trade them, right? So, like, uh, it's just it's a a thing we can't know. Is you know, trade value trade no trade clauses get bought out all the time. Teams come to them and say, "Hey, we don't want you anymore." This other team wants you, and they're going to give you a contract extension. And the team says, "Okay." Uh, or the player says, you know, I'm happy to waive my no-trade clause as long as we get more money out of the deal. Um, you know, to know what's in a player's mind and whether he's just absolutely not going to accept a trade somewhere else or if he's just going to use it for leverage, it's basically impossible to know. So uh, from that perspective, I decided just to not include those and assume that every player, even ones with a no-trade clause, are tradable uh, as long as there's a big big enough carrot waved in front of their nose. Do you remember any players of late who've, Who've had a no trade clause because absolutely they didn't they didn't want to be traded they liked where they were etc. Carlos Lee I think there was a you know a long time where everyone was like well you know he was playing for a losing team in Houston he makes a lot of money he could make sense for a contender but he have a farm in Texas and you know he's from the area he just wants to stay there even though he's on a losing team eventually you know he took to the last year of his deal uh, or the second to last year but he did agree to be traded I mean despite the fact that Carlos Lee uh, had long said he didn't want to be traded from Houston the Astros did eventually trade him. Right. Okay. But Carlos Lee is an example. Yeah, I, it was. Uh, you know, I, we obviously didn't prepare for that sort of thing. I was just curious. Uh, and now, listen. Uh, uh, one point before you go, though, um, because you've nearly fulfilled your obligation to the podcast, is um, uh, uh, with regard to this piece uh, to which you've linked today on the site. This is a Gabe Kapler piece. 
Um, and uh, Gabe Kapler, um, essentially, he's written this piece for WEI, which is a sports radio station in Boston, um, carries the Red Sox games. But they also, uh, he's, he's written a guest piece for them, or a piece for them. Um, discussing the the information gap that exists between yeah. uh, players, how players evaluate their performances, but then also right. how front op- not every front office, but how many front offices might evaluate their performances. And Kapler's concerned right. about this. Yeah, I mean, I think Kapler's making a pretty good point from a player's perspective. Of, uh, I think his analogy to a marriage is pretty good, where if the husband thinks he's performing all of his duties really well and he thinks his wife is happy with him and, and secretly his wife thinks he sucks and, you know, is wishing he would do all these other things, that's going to foster ill will and it would be better for the husband to actually know what his wife thought rather than just to live in delusion. Uh, you know, if there's a player, let's call him Juan Pierre, who's sitting 300 and uh, doesn't draw walks and doesn't hit for any power and his defense has declined, uh, you know, he, if he's evaluating himself by batting average, he might think he's still pretty good. The, the other teams might look at him and say, you know, you're a fourth or fourth or fifth outfielder. We don't want to pay you a lot of money. It would be important for Juan Pierre, or at least helpful for Juan Pierre, to understand that that's how teams saw him, and to reduce his expectation so that he didn't interpret the lack of interest as, you know, racism or some other uh, non-baseball factor. He could just realize, hey, you know, this is how I'm being evaluated, whether I agree with it or not. This is why teams are deciding not to hire me. Uh, yeah, surprising just in this moment to, to learn that Juan Pierre is only 35. It feels like he's been around forever. He has been around since 1917. Yeah, since 1917. Yeah. Yeah. He actually yeah. uh, he broke the color barrier and no one talked about it. <laughs> that's right, exactly. <laughs> he was Jackie Robinson 40 years early. Yeah, that's right. But they were like, yeah, you're just not that good. We're just not, we're not going to make a big deal of it. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the primary reason. Um, um, so, so yeah, so we so you think that uh, – but, but you make the point, I think, that – uh, perhaps it's not necessarily the team's responsibility to convey that information to the player directly. Perhaps that's, uh, that falls to the agent. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the it's not even so much about responsibility as it is about uh, having an open door for communication. I think, in general, if a front office employee uh, who are, who's seen with some skepticism among the players, I think the players and the owners have had kind of a long degree of acrimony, uh, you know, the owners colluded in the 1980s in order to hold down salaries. If, if a member of ownership or a front office came to a player and said, here's the deal, here's why we don't think you're very good, first of all, that's not going to go over very well in terms of uh, maintaining good relationships. Uh, secondly, I think that it might be seen as disingenuous. So maybe the front office executive or the, uh, the ownership representative might be seen as trying to promote some kind of idea that would hold down costs Whereas if the agent comes to them, the agent is, you know, acting on their behalf and, and trying to help them get as much money as they can, I think the player is more likely to trust the agent that he is telling him the truth than, you know, maybe some nefarious suit that could have ulterior motives. But it seems to me at some level there's an advantage for the teams, for the players not to know precisely wh- uh, why or how they're being compensated. Um, and, you know, if you have a player, I mean, I just think, like, this, this is a this is not, no bearing in reality, but... Ben Zobris market value uh, is because you know he provides a lot of value in terms of positional flexibility and defensive ability uh, th- the fact that while he doesn't necessarily demonstrate uh, tons of power uh, he's he's very uh, productive offensively if if the if players think they're being compensated and if the market suggests they're being compensated for uh, you know high batting average high RBI totals etc uh, there's an advantage 
to, to raise uh, to to pay uh, Ben Zobrist what that market suggests, um, while actually reaping the benefits were, uh, of his actual production. Yeah, but I think they give it all back when it comes to paying closers and first basemen, right? So, like, I mean, maybe teams are saving a little bit of money on, you know, multiple positional guys who get on base and don't hit for a lot of power, but then Jonathan Papelbon becomes a free agent and makes $52 million. Uh, I think overall, the share of the pie that goes from the owners to the players is about the same no matter whether they're, the players understand how they're valued or whether teams are valuing the correct skills. They're, they're going to give a certain amount of their money and their revenues to the players, the question is just how it's allocated. I don't think it's necessarily good for the teams overall, but there's these large market inefficiencies where bad players are getting a lot of money and good players are getting a little bit of money. Uh, you know, there might be some competitive balance issues there where the Rays were able to figure out that Ben Bobris is good and save a lot of money, and uh, if there was no market inefficiency, maybe they wouldn't be as competitive. But I don't think it's necessarily good for ownership saving money to have some players just getting money that should go to Ben Bobris. Right. Well, I guess the Rays have figured out because they have James. I mean, they've had James Loney and Casey Kochman and Carlos Pena playing first base. Right. They certainly have figured out that power is overpriced. Right. Right. All right. Well, uh, how do you feel about this? You uh, you feel like we did everything we needed to? I did. I managed to not squeal despite getting bit like sixteen times. So this is good. I'm glad I have not yet uh, been recorded squealing like a girl. No, wait. You uh, uh, you uh, well, or like a, uh, like either gender. Both genders yes, right. squeal. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Right. yeah, yeah, sure. Right. There's a difference in pitch, probably. <laughs> yeah, right. right. In the interest of political correctness, we'll, we'll go with that. Okay, right. But the uh, the other thing is, uh, wait, why is your dog biting? Like, how hard are we talking about? Uh, you know, she's a puppy. She's teething. So uh, she, in her mind, it's play. We're trying to teach her what level of play is is not correct, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, she's nine weeks old. She doesn't understand yet, so she thinks my feet are fantastic chew toys, and she's got pretty sharp teeth. Yeah. Hey, uh, listen, I've also uh, illicitly um, looked up Juan Pierre's player page here um, while we've been talking. Do you know that um, last year, uh, with two, <laughs> 2012, was the first year that he did not record double-digit uh, caught stealing since, 2000, <laughs> since the year 2000? And it also that, was, that, that does sound like Juan Pierre. Uh, it was also the most efficient uh, he's been in terms of stealing bases in his entire career uh, last year. Yeah, I mean, I don't hate Juan Pierre. No, no, I, I know. You, you hate know. Juan Pierre. Right. That's fine. You hate Juan Pierre. Yeah. No, I think Juan Pierre is just a good example of the kind of player that was incorrectly valued by Major League Baseball for quite a while. Right. And that's, well, that's the thing. And that's actually why I take some um, exception to your, your point with regard to uh, who, who's the player you, you dislike more than any other? He played for your team the last couple of years. Uh, Miguel Olivo. Miguel Olivo. Because it's not yeah. it's not Miguel Olivo's fault that that's his skill set, right? Like yeah, Miguel Olivo. No, if, if, if Miguel Olivo worked harder, uh, he wouldn't be a pass ball machine. Right, but okay, but so but he but working harder is or, or his level of work is, I think it's like that's like something that's native to a person. You know, there's I'm sure there's that, that some he, that he refuses to drop down and block a pitch in the dirt. No, that's lazy. Right, but has he been do Was he doing it his whole career or most of his career? Yes, Miguel okay. Olivo succeeded in spite of his laziness. Right. Okay. So laziness. I'm also lazy, and I would have done that too. In addition to being to have to lacking many of the physical tools that Miguel Olivo did, the Mariners made a smart decision though in not signing me to a contract. And my point right. is that that level there was nothing to suggest that his level of work would change. Is is that fair to say? Uh, I 
I think it's not unreasonable to expect a moderately talented young player to put in the necessary work to get better. Right, but he didn't. He did not. And by the time the Orioles, or by the time the Mariners signed him, what, these last couple years, he was not that sort of player. I think you pin that on the front office. You say that's the front office doing that. I think you can also pin some of it on Mandela Levo. I think if you can look at a guy who has power, who has a strong throwing arm, who's athletic, who runs pretty well for a catcher, and he just never got any better at anything since he was about 22, and he stagnated as a you know backup catcher despite having the physical abilities of being a pretty good player, that's on him. Okay. Well, let's disagree to disagree because I'm going to because I'm going to say that you're wrong and I'm right. I think that you that's say. Fine. I think you say this player has been like this for 10 years. We we cannot expect him to change in his age, 32 season, 33 season. Yeah, it looks like he, yeah, he, he got put together almost 1,000 plate appearances for the Mariners. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I mean, this was his second go-around. He was originally acquired with Jeremy Reed in the Freddy Garcia trade back in 2004. This was the second time Miguel Alito has been terrible for the Mariners. Yeah. Yeah, look at that. I see what you're saying now. It looks like they traded him to the Padres. Yeah, and, and do you remember who they got in exchange that time? Uh, good question. There was a really terrible pitcher involved. I know that. It was, a, it was one of those, like, I will give you our crap for your crap, and then both guys were still crap. And then, uh, but it, it, it deserves me to know that he went on to hit, to slash 304, 341, 487 with the Padres in a short yeah. period of time. Right. I mean, Miguel Olivo has talent. I think if Miguel Olivo had bothered to learn about play discipline mm-hmm. or... Uh, you know, anything other than swing for the fences on every single pitch, right. he could have turned into a pretty good player. Right. Again, I will say it's your, it's the team that signs him, though. The team ought to know uh, what his upside is, especially, I mean, there's not upside at age 32. Huh. You know, you, if a guy has not... Yeah. Right. So you're upset, I think you were trying to say we can only blame the, the team. I'm saying let's blame both. Okay. All right. I, I have lots of blame to go around. Yeah, I know you do. Yeah, you have a blame machine, blame game. Uh, okay, All right, well, you're done. you're done now. Hey, what do you think yeah. got more page views um, uh, yesterday's edition of the notes or David Appleman's post uh, <laughs> announcing that there was server maintenance? Uh, probably the notes because it went up way earlier. Okay, that's a good point. All right, so well, good. The like, quantity of hours. I consider I consider an announcement about server maintenance to be the uh, to be the threshold that the bar that's, that's <laughs> our replacement level post. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, uh, it actually got a fair amount of fair amount of comments. I guess people want yeah, well, to. Yeah, people, people were pretty upset at 1:30 in the morning when the site went down. Yeah, they were. Yeah. Well, there was a post. You can't, of course, you can't read that post if there is server right. maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So there you go. There is the catch twenty two. All right. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Dave Cameron for, uh, for for analyzing most of baseball today. Yeah, I, I was happy to do it. All right. That is uh, Managing Editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.